today on Sagittarian Matters, toothpaste, wasabi japonica, Paddington 2, and more. With my guests, Isaac Salave-Strozier and Ali Liebegott. Stay tuned. Hello from Boston, Massachusetts. I come to you from the 10th floor of a beautiful hotel. Producer Ponyo is in her bag with her headphones on doing the levels in her mobile dog home. And we have just finished giving a talk at Northeastern University. Yes, we. Ponyo helped me. We did a comics workshop. We did an artist talk with a professional practices and activism slant. We had dinner with students, and now I am here to answer some advice questions that came in last week after the deadline. Here we go. Number one, actually, this is unsolicited advice. This advice is pack less stuff than I do. Producer Ponyo and I are on a month-long tour, and I tell you listeners, I am a tiny woman, and I have no fewer than six bags. I have a giant suitcase full of clothes. Clothes for teaching, clothes for writing, clothes for giving presentations. I have a bag full of comics uh, and teaching stuff and zine stuff. I have a backpack with my laptop and my books in it. I have Ponyo's mobile home, which is a bag on wheels. I have my purse. I just, there's a tote bag full of food so I don't die as a vegan on the road. I just like... I'm the bag lady from Labyrinth, and I don't know how to not be the bag lady from Labyrinth. So if anyone has a Hermione Granger purse they can give me that can collapse everything into one handbag, I would appreciate it. I don't like being the person on the plane with too many carry-ons, but I just don't understand another way. Okay, more questions. Dear Nicole, how do you handle criticism? Dear listener... Well, first of all, there's a difference in criticism. Okay. There's like a-holes on the internet, like troll kind of, you know, just randos, random people that have nothing to do with anything. I don't read their comments. I don't read their reviews on Goodreads. I don't read comments on things or like I don't take subtweets to heart. So there's some people that have nothing to do with you or your life that weren't even your fans in the first place. Just don't even worry about them. Okay. The second thing is, so there's there's people, and then there's people that just, your work isn't for them. And when someone's giving you criticism, and I'm assuming this is about work, this could be personally, someone saying, you're a shitty friend, you know, I don't know what they're saying to you, but there's some people you're just not compatible. You know, there's people that picked up my book and they didn't like it because they were never going to like a comic or because they just don't want to read a story about a woman. Or a feminist. Okay, that's not my readership. That's not the person I'm writing it for. The third kind of, you know, criticism would be from someone who otherwise would like you and or has your best interests at heart and or wants your work or you to be the best you or the best work it can be. And those people are the ones that I do give a little bit of time to and listen to. And when people are giving me criticism, I try to respond not react because my reaction when I you know when I get an edit I don't like 
when I read something I don't like, my reaction instinctively is like a seven-year-old. I want to say, you're stupid. You don't understand. Stupid. That's my instinct. So that's why I'm not uh, letting that one out there right away. I sit on it. You know, if it's something like a friend is telling you something or someone, you know, an editor sitting you down and you know you're going to get a little overwhelmed, I write it down, the note, you know, the, the bullet points of what they said. I'm very polite and I sit on it. So then look at it again in a week or some amount of time where your, you know, adrenaline has kind of gone down and you're feeling more chill and then see what's the truth in this or what's the value in this? Did they say something that actually could help? And if a bunch of people keep saying the same thing, there could be truth in that. If you are telling a joke that you think is the best joke and literally no one laughs at it ever, then what is the point of continuing to tell that joke? You know what I mean? Um, I was just thinking today, like there's certain jokes I've told over time to multiple different friends that I thought were hilarious, but nobody ever laughed. And so then I realized that might be a joke for me and producer Ponyo only. Um, anyway, that's my advice to that. Except also, P.S., you don't have to take everything everyone says personally, you know? If it'll make you a better person, perfect. If not, don't worry about it. Like RuPaul says, if they're not paying your bills, don't pay them any mind. Okay, next question. Dear Nicole, how honest is too honest with your partner or is there no such thing? Dear listener, I have no idea what you're talking about. So I want to give you a couple of tips from Anonymous Fuzzball. One, is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? Next, does it need to be said? Does it need to be said by me? Does it need to be said right now? I want you to think about those things before you say whatever the honest thing is that you want to say. Is it true? Is it kind? Is it necessary? In Portland, Oregon, in the early 2000s, there was a thing called radical honesty, which a lot of people would use as a way to be assholes and then be like, oh, I was just being honest. I mean, there's a certain point where it's not, it's not valuable. You don't need to say every single thing that's in your head. You don't need to tell them every horrible thing you've ever done unless it's necessary. Do they need this information for a greater purpose? Probably not. Side note, one of the greatest pieces of, pieces of advice I ever got from Beth Pickens, friend of the show, is, you know, she was talking about how when you're in a fight with somebody you're in a relationship with and your feelings are at a 10, you don't need to make any big decisions right then. Everything that's happening right then is just information. You can sit on it, you can wait, and you can make those big decisions later. So, you know, if the person is chewing their food super loud and you get in a fight and you're like, you know what, I can't be with someone who chews their food like that, you can make that big decision a little bit later. Okay, next question. Dear Nicole, how do you balance relationships and career? Dear listener, we answered this question last week with Brandy, so I do recommend you go back and listen to what she had to say, but I will recap and add a little bit more. Um... If you're an artist and your career is in the art, art is how you process the world. It's how you process your emotions. And so without art, you will not be a balanced dog. You will not be a balanced human being, and thus you will have less to give your partners. So it's good to think, how much time do I need doing my thing every week? 
every day, um, every month in order to feel balanced and good. How much work do I need to do to survive? How much work do I need to do to feel balanced? Okay, what's left? Be honest with people when you're trying to date them about what's left. Is there a lot left? Is there a little left? Does it ebb and flow? What does it mean to have the job you have? I'm only assuming you're an artist. You could be a banker, in which case I think you should choose love over banking. But if you're an artist, it gets a little bit more scrappy. Once I was reading one of those articles about whether or not women can have it all. Can you have a kid and a career? And this woman who was a mother and had a job was saying, you know, you can have it all. However, no matter what you're doing, the other thing is suffering a little bit. And I think that that, the thing she said, and who knows if I'm even allowed to say that or repeat it because I'm not a mother, but I do find a lot of solace in the acceptance that there are different seasons for different things. The trick, I think, is to accept that not everything needs to be happening at the exact same time for your life to be okay. So there could be times where you're having incredible professional success. Incredible things are happening for you. And during those times, you may have a little bit less energy for your romantic relationships if you are chasing that success. And there might be times when you're having incredible success in your relationships with your friends, with your family, with your lovers, whatever. And during those times, you may have a little bit less energy for your work in an incredible way. And the moments when you get to have both at the same time are not promised. So if you can accept you know, what life is giving you at whatever moment, I think that that's the key to being happy in a relationship work balance. And it is nice also, you know, if you're having a frantic work time where tons of great things are coming to you, is there something on the horizon that will allow for more relational energy and vice versa? Okay, next question. Dear Nicole, I'm always late and I think that's rude. Any advice on how to fix this? SOS, yours truly, Ann Landers. Dear Ann Landers, thank you for this question. Longtime fan. I'm glad you asked me something. Um, it is rude to be late, and some people take great offense at it. My friend Alec Longstreth, for example, tells students that when they're late to his class, he feels like they're spitting in his face. I don't feel like people are spitting in my face when they're late, but I do feel like they are making a real big claim in my schedule and in my day that I didn't actually consent to. So um, I try not to be late, especially to people who I know care about it. However, it is not my custom to be early to things because I was raised by somebody who was addicted to the chaos of being late and having I, ha I was raised by somebody who liked life to be just a little bit more exciting than it needed to be by adding extra elements of consequence, such as being late and rushing. And now, as an adult, I no longer feel the need to have that much chaos in my life made by me. Uh, there's enough out there that I can't control. I don't need to actually make my own life worse by being addicted to the thrill of getting to a place on time and wanting to murder everyone in my path on the way there because they are in the way of me getting there on time, which is actually my own fault. So what I would say to you is, A, consider that someone feels like you might be spitting in their face by being late. And two, here's some real Dr. Laura advice for you. If somebody gave you $20,000 to be there 10 minutes early, would you do it? Okay. 
Do you need to trick yourself into doing it? How can you trick yourself? A way I have tricked myself is by writing in my planner that I'm supposed to be there 15 minutes earlier than I actually am. That way I'll show up at that time or five minutes later and I'm still early. Uh, Write it down earlier. Fake yourself out. Is there some kind of trick you can play on yourself to make yourself do the thing? Can you make yourself pay a fine every time you're late? Consider it. Here's an example of tricking yourself. I, Nicole Georges, when I was a 20-something and I had roommates, I loved eating food that wasn't mine. That was the best food around. One time, all I had of my own groceries, and this was before Postmates, all I had was frozen toaster waffles, and I didn't want to eat them. I asked my roommate, Alice, if she would pretend like they belonged to her, they were delicious, and she did not want me to have any. She said, sure. I I ducked around a corner, poked my head in the kitchen, and Alice did a whole show about how much she loved her toaster waffles, said aloud to nobody they were so delicious, and she hoped that nobody would eat any. Then she put them back in the fridge and left the room. After she left the room, I snuck in. I furtively grabbed a toaster waffle. I made it with margarine and maple syrup. I enjoyed it. It was delicious. I played a trick on myself, and it worked. Can you play a trick on yourself and make it work? That is my best advice to you. Thank you for your questions this week. Please send in more. Our phone number is 971-361-9998. You can leave a message or send us a text. I will not know who you are. It will be completely anonymous. That is our promise. And I have some unsolicited advice for you, which is if you live in New York or you're visiting there, go to Superiority Burger on Monday night and get the tofu fried tofu sandwich. It was voted one of the best chicken sandwiches in the city of New York. And it's not even chicken. It's made of tofu. It's so delicious. Another thing they have right now is a Yuba Verde, which is Yuba noodles in a sandwich with broccolini and some kind of slaw and fried onions on a toasted roll. And it is fucking awesome. I really recommend these things to you. Do a favor to your mouth and go to Superiority Burger. Ask them for these things or ask them if they have anything off menu. Okay, have a great week and enjoy our review of Paddington 2. Allie Liebegott is the award-winning author of the books The Beautifully Worthless, The IHOP Papers, and Cha-Ching. She's toured the country with Sister Spit, which is where we met many years ago. Allie currently lives in Los Angeles. She wrote for the Emmy award-winning show Transparent, and she currently does stand-up comedy with Michelle T. at a night called Clown Town. So we're in New York City right now. Producer Ponyo is on the couch with her headphones. She's doing the levels. And we... There she is! We are calling um, Allie Liebegott, who's our resident expert in the movie that we're going to review today, Paddington 2. We're a little late. Well, we're a little late on it. Welcome, Allie. Good morning. Isaac and I were discussing the, discussing the fact that both of us have seen Paddington 2, but not Paddington 1. What? So I don't know if you need... Do you need to catch us up on what happened in Paddington 1? But we all have opinions about Paddington Part 2. I, I also don't think I've seen you since I've seen Paddington 2. Have I? Do you look different? Do you feel different? I, you I feel loved like- it so much. I think it's my favorite movie of the year so far. But let's... 
You can go. What do you, what do you have to say? Yeah. I mean, it's a triumph. It is the best movie possibly ever made. Um, I don't know if you guys know the backstory, but Paddington had to lose uh, 50 pounds for the role. And <laughs> he did. He was a lot like Adam Driver in that um, awful movie Silence, uh, where he was like a monk. Did you guys see Silence? I saw Silence, a really, no. truly horrible movie. It was, it's like being whacked in the face with a dick for three hours. But like he, he, um, Adam Driver had to lose a lot of weight for that role. And so did Paddington. Um, well, so what, was there anything that we missed plot wise from Paddington one? Because Paddington two starts with a cliffhanger kind of scene with two bears on a bridge and Paddington comes into their life. But that seemed like when I saw it, I thought that's for those of us who haven't seen Paddington one. Right, Paddington One. You don't need Paddington One for Paddington Two. You just need Paddington One for life. Okay. Paddington One is a different feeling. Um, it's like I was so upset after seeing Paddington One that I couldn't drive home from the theater uh, because I cried so much. Paddington One is very <laughs> emotionally manipulative, where they. You know, they kill his family right away, and he has to, you know, he has to come to London with a couple sandwiches and figure it out. And um, I liked Paddington 1 a lot. I feel like I'm not sure about the ending of it. It got a little, um, like, poor man's Cruella DeVille character, you know. Yeah. They, they went that route, opposed to the cinematic emotional lyrical journey that was Paddington 2. Well, let's talk about number 2. So, okay. In Paddington 2, um Paddington is really looking forward to buying a a popping book. Yeah. For yes. his so we, for his, for his aunt because uh -huh. she's never been to London and it's a pop-up book that shows yeah. London. They call it a popping book. So he's why, trying to, Why do they call it a popping book? That I I can't help you with that. I'm not so, I can't help so he gets a job washing windows to earn the money, and he uses his whole body to wipe yeah, the windows yeah. off. <laughs> Very Magic Mike kind of. I thought about Magic Mike a lot during this movie because I felt like. <laughs> have you seen Magic Mike two Double XL? Of course. Have I, or have I only seen the first one? What's the one where they're in the like RV? The second one, where there's oh, like too much improv for like the capacity of those actors. Like there's like a lot of conversations where like where's this going, and it's just. I can't. Was Pat or was uh, Magic Mike two? Was there a beach bonfire scene? Yeah, I think so. Yeah, yeah. I <laughs> vaguely remember. I don't even know how I found myself. I was probably drugged. But listen, Paddington two was like there was a computer program, like made for my soul to make the perfect movie, and it's Paddington two because it's like false imprisonment. Oh yeah, working class jobs, <laughs> sandwiches. Um, it's like gay dance musicals in jail, um, abandonment. Mm -hmm. Can we talk about the scene, the stoner scene? Now I don't partake in such things, but I hear other people do on Earth. The stoner scene where Paddington cries and then a forest grows in his mind 
in the cell. It's all off a single tier. Oh yeah, oh, I forgot about that. that. He's in his he's in his prison cell. He cries because he misses his family and he thinks they're going to abandon him. His tear goes between the bricks and some grass starts growing up. Yeah. But then a whole forest grows up and then he's tripping out in the forest. And then you realize that he's actually just in his cell having a hallucination. Yep. Yeah. <laughs> I, di- I didn't have that same experience when I was illegally arrested and brought to jail. When were you illegally arrested and brought to jail? 1992 for what and my 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 cellmate said i just don't want to be stuck in here with a big bull dyke you know what i mean and then she <laughs> said no offense <laughs> well, yeah, I, was, uh, I said none taken <laughs> why were you falsely imprisoned how did well, you clear your name the innocence project is this like serial I don't feel like I can talk about it because yeah, I'm going to use it all for my pitch for Paddington 3. Oh, <laughs> okay, I understand. I'm not ready to talk about it. But I went to jail once for a day, and my cellmate was like, you better write me. You better write me or I'll find you. Like, she threatened me that I needed to... After start- a day? Yeah. Hmm. She was really lonely. Oh, uh, yeah, bitch. <laughs> <laughs> also, what? my tattoos were very popular in prison. I bet they were. What were you in jail for? Jail for a protest. But I was in for a day and a half. Ooh, it was that's a, pretty good. That's that was, a long time. That was kind of a long time for, you know, you think that you're going to go in and they're just going to. You spent the night. How were your vegan meal requests in jail, Nicole? I, well, I didn't eat anything because you have to fill out so many pieces of paper that say that you're requesting vegan food. And me and all the vegans that I got arrested with were put all these, like, memos to the warden that were like, vegan meal, please, vegan meal, please. What do they give you? What is the vegan meal? Well, I don't know because I didn't get it. I ate like the bread off some clementine and a <laughs> piece of moldy wheat bread. Um, but anyway, so Paddington too. Okay, you know. let's get back. We're all over. <laughs> so your experience in jail was not like Paddington's. You, you didn't. Unfortunately, make, no. Not. You were so, Knuckles. Was there a Was there a Knuckles McGinty type? I, I think I was Knuckles. Yeah, you were Knuckles. <laughs> Knuckles was the the mean chef, similar to Red from Orange Is the New Black, episode one. Yes. N-U-C-K-E-L-S. Knuckles. Yeah. And Paddington, you know, wanted to complain about the food and everybody was upset. I don't want to give anything away. Yeah. <laughs> uh, can I just ask the two of you, and feel free to not participate, where are you on the Kinsey scale for attraction towards Paddington? I had a real Paddington devotion for the first couple of days after I saw it. I drew a picture, of, a big picture of Paddington. It really, I was really surprised by how how much it affected me. That's all I could talk about to anybody. Yeah. Who I was talking about Aunt Lucy all the time. Oh my God! It's all, can I tell you at the end of the movie? Wait, I'd like you to answer oh, the question. Kinsing, I I don't think I want to have sex with Paddington. I would like to cuddle him. I thought he was great looking. He was so cute. He warmed my heart. But I didn't actually want to, like, have him be my boyfriend or anything. What if he peed on you? What if he punched <laughs> you in the mouth, Nicole? <laughs> well, then we're talking about there's something different there. What if he has glasses, Nicole? Little dark-rimmed glasses. That changes everything, doesn't it? <laughs> it does change everything. If Paddington was a bear with glasses... <laughs> And like a pale vegan complexion, <laughs> then where would you be? All right. Um, I, I'm in. I have a question about no, the first one. I'm in. 
I'm in for Paddington. You're in for Paddington. Well, wait, can we talk about your favorite sexy scene from Paddington? Oh, God. Yes. <laughs> After he almost drowned. Spoilers for everyone who's listening. Um, spoiler. It's hard to get a vegan meal in jail. Um, but when he almost drowned and he was laying in bed and all the... F- and he, he came out, out out of the coma or, you know, his knockout or whatever you want to call it. And then he was just laying in his little bed and the fur on his chest was all must. <laughs> <laughs> you liked that part? That was your favorite I, part? I, I mean, I appreciated it. Someone gay wrote that movie, right? I don't know. Somebody gay adjacent. Oh, and I do need to say... Someone who doesn't know they're gay wrote that movie. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. When he almost drowns, I really felt like they were running out of air. I felt very anxious during yeah. that part. They were underwater for so long. Yeah. Before yeah. they were saved. Okay, what were you going to say? In the first movie, are people alarmed by Paddington being a bear? Is there a conversation about it in the neighborhood? Because in the second one, it's sort of treated like, oh, this is Paddington, our friend the bear. Everyone waves. But I was wondering in the first one, is there some sort of, is there any kind of conflict about a bear living in the neighborhood? I thought in the second one, wasn't Paddington a stand-in for like, wasn't, it was like, like he was, it was like thinly veiled Islamophobia. Wasn't that happening in yeah, London? Yeah, no one was freaking out like there's a bear in the street. You know what I mean? It was like. They were like, we don't like that. Like the one guy was like, I don't want your kind here. Yeah. Right, right, right. And everyone else, like, I, he, he adds to the community. Yeah. He adds to the community. He does add to the community. I don't remember that in the first one. Hmm. I mean, like I said, I had some serious trauma after watching it. Um, no, I don't remember that the the bear part being the issue. Um, last last notes about Paddington Isaac. Anything we didn't get to? I just loved it so much. Do so. You think I do need to see Paddington one? I mean, I don't know how you want to spend your time on Earth, Isaac. But like for me. I think Paddington one is a must. I want to spend as much time with Paddington as possible. Yeah, it's 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 a different feeling than Paddington two, which I think is okay. I think it's okay, and I hope Paddington three. I have a pitch for Paddington three. What can you tell it to us? Yeah, sure. I think Paddington three is just. A, did you guys either one of you see Russian Ark? No. Oh, but I know what it is. I don't. It's one shot right through a museum. It's one shot. It's like a 90-minute one, one-er. I think Paddington 3 should be a one-er, 90 minutes. It's just a sex scene between me and Paddington. <laughs> and then Paddington 4 picks up where Paddington 2 left off. And we just sort of like drop these things in and... Yeah, that's my pitch. I'm going to bring it out probably next week. Where are you guys? Are you at the house, the family's house? Or are you, Me a, right or now? Are you in Los Feliz? No, you in Paddington's sex scene. Did he come to Los <laughs> Feliz or did you go to London? Oh, I was thinking maybe a hotel room. <laughs> like some sort of like Motel 6 situation. <laughs> where we have to like keep his marmalade sandwiches in like double extra freezer strength Ziplocs so the bugs don't get them. You know, I go deep with this. There's 90 minutes. There's 90 Where minutes. Are <laughs> Were either of you feeling feeling they stretched reality with the with the amount of uh, juicy oranges that got sent to the prison directly the day after Paddington made a deal with the chef? I mean that they had all are, the marmalade ingredients. Yeah. I don't think you can start nitpicking reality when a bear is in prison doing laundry. <laughs> Do you know what I mean? 
I mean, I kind of do. I just, you know, we've all watched Orange is the New Black. We know the level of security at a TV prison. So <laughs> um, I, I was surprised that nobody, I mean, you know, I don't know. Not to be a Seinfeld, but have you ever noticed that I never try to sell you Blue Apron on the podcast? Or that we do not disparage and bemoan trips to the post office in favor of stamps.com? Well, it is because we have no advertisers. Zero. Producer Chris, producer Ponyo, and myself do this out of the goodness of our hearts. Because we like it. If you would like to tip producer Chris Sutton, who dedicates hours to this series every week, please, 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 please send your tip of $5, $10, who knows how much. That's your business via PayPal to hornetleg at gmail.com. That is hornet, like the insect, leg, like one of his appendages, at gmail.com. If you do this, we will read your name on the podcast. Isn't that exciting? We may have advertisers someday, and we'll rant and rave about free sex toys and mattresses and Blue Apron and whatever, but in the meantime, thank you. We appreciate your support, and I look forward to saying your name on the podcast. Producer Ponyo looks forward to it, too. That was Ponyo's voice. Don't be scared. Bye. Thank you this week to Shoshana Ruth Wechter, Saya from Boulder, Beth Delaney, Mary Pinson, and Christy Herod. I've actually met Paddington. What? I've heard. Ben Wishaw, who play, who is the voice of Paddington, was, he's a serious actor. He, he was on Broadway. He did The Crucible. And a friend of mine was in The Crucible play, and we got to go backstage. And I met Ben Wishaw, and I said to him, I just have to tell you, <laughs> Crucible's great, but Paddington was incredible. And he was wearing, like, a black shirt and was holding a glass of red wine. What did he say? Thank you. He said thank you, but he, you know, he's a weird, dark guy. He had, po- like, poetry collections in his backstage room that, like, only I have those poetry books. Dark, dark like Larry Levis's poems. Like anyway, Ben Wishaw was phenomenal. I love his range. I love the humanity. There may or may not have been rumors that to do the voice of Paddington, he's put like pieces of wonder bread in his cheeks. Is that true? I mean, I don't know what's true. Hmm. But so what were you going to say about Hugh Grant? I mean, I met a Paddington at the Grove. It wasn't the Paddington, but it was right. a Paddington. It was someone in a Paddington suit? Someone in a Paddington suit, yeah. I have to tell you guys, I mean, Ali, you probably already know this about me, but I have a thing for people dressed as the thing. I will just go ahead and make that leap. Like, when I met the band Harry and the Potters, and they were both dressed like Harry Potter, like, Paul DeGeorge is in my phone as Harry Potter. And I felt as if I had just met the character from the book, and I felt really excited. Like, I would like to name drop characters the sa- in the same level as famous animals, you know, where I'm like, oh, you know, uh, Mickey Mouse. Yeah, he we're pretty close. Actually, he like put his arm over my shoulder. Like I just yeah. I see them as the real thing. So seeing Paddington at the Grove. I to meet Winnie the Pooh. Right. And about five year olds waited. Mm-hmm. I gave Winnie the Pooh the biggest hug I could. Yeah, exactly. Like, I just feel it in that moment. I'm like, this is you. Yeah. Yeah. You're embodying the thing for me. Hugh Grant. Yeah, he really. I don't know what he, he brought it. He really brought it. I think, dare I say, it was the finest performance of his life. <laughs> he did it. Yeah, I mean, he was fantastic. He really, um, 
I I I was really nervous when they sneak into his house and he comes home. That was a that was a really scary scene. Remember that? Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I'm surprised that he didn't tie them up or put tape over someone's mouth or trap them in a pit like Sons of the Lambs or something. Well, that's Paddington Three. That's that's, <laughs> that's, that's, that's all in Paddington Three. That's a yeah. Why not? <laughs> Where you hear them going, hey, mister, I got your dog down here. Um, yeah, so uh, Paddington 2, two, two thumbs up for me. Two thumbs up. You must go see it. Anybody who hasn't seen it yet has to. Yes, I agree. I mean, I don't know how you want to. We could be in the middle of a war tomorrow. Get get out to Paddington 2 and see it. It's Yeah, I mean, you know, take a, take a United flight. Yeah. Go to the theater. I, I disagree, actually. I think this is something to be seen on the big screen. Really? Yeah. Right. I I went to go see it in the theater. I was I I got my got there late, so I was in the very front row, and so I was looking up at the huge pack, and it was filled with kids. Afterwards, I just I uh, I clapped. I, me and everybody everybody just applauded afterwards. It was so it was such a great experience. Did you say, oh, triumph, oh, triumph? <laughs> Did not say that, no. He thought it, though. He thought it. Can I ask you, if you have to go, do what you got to do, but I we like having you here. Short it. Can I ask it. you guys, what was your opinion of Babe, Pig in the City 2? Pig in the City. Babe. Babe 2, Pig in the City. That's one of my favorite I movies. the second one. Really? I don't know if I've I seen the second I, one either. I, I only saw the one with, is Ferdinand in the second one as well? Yes. I don't know if I saw Babe in the City too. Is James is what's his name in both of them? Yeah, James, James Cromwell's Cromwell? only in number two for a second. James Cromwell, famous vegan. Oh, I didn't know that. Um, I definitely saw one. I don't know. You guys, Pig in the City is such a roller coaster, and it's so dark, and it really rips you apart until it gets better at the very, very end. Like you know how the original Babe has all these ups and downs. Mm-hmm. Like each chapter, you're like, "What's gonna happen?" Oh, oh, it's fine, and then you know. Bay Pig in the City is down, 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 and you think you're in the pits of hell, and you're like, how, what's, how's this going to go down? I think I just watched a dog almost drown. And then at the last minute, it steers out of it. It is a masterpiece, and it was underrated. It's one of my favorite movies. It will make I you feel feeling. Re- I think I, I don't remember. Ba- I, that's something I need to revisit because I don't remember Babe. Oh, yeah. Well, um, I really recommend it. There's a hotel full of animals, including dogs, chimps, uh, cats, mice, ducks, fish. Well, that duck is – Ferdinand is an Indian runner. Yeah. Which is why I like that. That's the kind of duck that I was obsessed with is the Indian runner, the ones that stand upright like a bowling pin. Yeah, he looks just like a bowling pin. They can't fly. Oh, he flies in the movie. That's Not very crazy. well. That's a Hollywood license. They're really not flyers. They're known for their egg-laying skills. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can't really, like what somebody said, you know, you can't really, you know, pick. When you're talking about a, a pig in a hotel in a movie, you can't really pick apart things. But I do recommend it, and it does get dark, but just stick with it. Because, okay. um, yeah, I mean, I would even watch it with you, but, you know, like we have, we have other movies we need to watch. Well, I'm so glad that I could be called in as a Paddington expert. You are a Paddington expert. I mean, this isn't, you know, I feel like I want to have you on sometime and I have like other things to talk to you about, like writing or something. Okay. I'd love to come back. Come back to the podcast anytime. Okay. I 
Isaac Soloway Strozier is a friend to the show who you may recognize from our coveted Shark Tank episode. He joined Ponyo and I in his own apartment in New York City to discuss Aesop brand toothpaste and lotion. Isaac Soloway Strozier, welcome back to Sagittarian Matters. I'm so happy to be back. This is going to be the best 15 minutes of your life, I think. What do you have today? So I recently went to the uh, Aesop store in uh, Manhattan's West Village. A friend was in town and wanted some deodorant. So I bought, I was actually in need of toothpaste. So I bought the Aesop toothpaste, which I had never tried. It says the some of the ingredients are sea buckthorn, cardamom, and wasab- wasabia japonica. Wait, can we? I need to stop you there. Okay, so Aesop's tooth, it's, it's quite expensive, right? I think it was $11. Oh, that's not that bad, actually. But it has a beautiful, beautiful. just a beautiful wrapping. But Wasabia Japonica, I think that we know. Is that Japanese wasabi? That's their way of saying Japanese wasabi. <laughs> wasabia Japonica. <laughs> it's pretty funny to me. Yes. Okay, so I'm trying it. So also, can I just add that on top of that, when they asked if I wanted any samples, I said lotion? They said hand lotion, face lotion, or body lotion? I said body lotion. And they gave me so many samples. So right now, Nicole J. Georges is going to try the Aesop toothpaste, and then we're going to try out some of the lotion samples. Here she goes. <laughs> I, I really took one for the team. I didn't brush my teeth yet today. Initial thoughts, what do you think? Um, it has like a fennel-y kind of taste, which I really like. The fennel taste I enjoy. There is no um, fluoride in this, as you would expect. There's no fluoride, but I like fluoride because I come from Portland where we don't have fluoridated water. And so if you have bad teeth like me and you need fluoride, you have to buy it. Interesting. Okay, that's nice. That's good. I like it. I don't know if I think it's better than Tom's. Also, is it getting sudsy? Yes, it's very white and sudsy. It's also rather thin for a toothpaste. Mm-hmm. It's on the. Th- it's one of the thinner toothpastes I've ever used. What do I think? Yeah. I like the flavor. It's an interesting flavor for a toothpaste. Um, I like the flavor a lot, and my mouth feels nice. I think I would French somebody after using this. Like, my tongue feels coated in licorice, which is a nice feeling, I think, to pass on to someone else. Um, it's not as thick as, like, you know, I'm like, what about this versus, like, a Tom's fennel toothpaste? Mm-hmm. I don't know if I would go for this compared to a Tom's fennel toothpaste. I've never had the Tom's fennel, but maybe that'll be my next try. I mean, if you like fennel. So the Aesop toothpaste dentifrice with wasabia. Wasabia, japonica, sea buckthorn, (laughs) and cardamom. Oh, here's what it says about itself. So this is what it says right here. Distinctively distinctively flavored toothpaste to clean teeth and gums effectively maintain immaculate oral hygiene. Dispense desired amount onto toothbrush and brush thoroughly for two minutes before rinsing. Okay. Would you agree with that, that it is distinctively flavored? Yeah. Yeah. It's distinct, but also, like, if we had some Tom's fennel toothpaste next to it, I don't know if it would 
be so fancy. I so mean, next you, to Crest, if you're using next Crest, to Crest, yeah, if you're using Crest, and then you go there to buy cologne and you buy this toothpaste, you might be like, "Ooh, Lady Japonica Wasabia." Exactly. I'm looking at some of the ingredients. It has tea tree oil, spearmint, anise, sea salt, sea salt, and toothpaste, really, and wasabi japonica. Clove. There's clove in this. Okay, um, so are we? Is this? We okay, have, now we're gonna try the. We have one lotion in us before we have to get Allie on the horn. Okay. But uh, you know. So the different flavors that we got were black pepper, pink grapefruit, tangerine rind, geranium leaf. We're gonna have to go for that black pepper, I think. And those were all of them. A black pepper lotion? Why not? Should we open it up? Yeah. Should we get into yeah, it? Yeah, let's get into it. Now this is a hydrating body balm. Don't the you black know? pepper. This so we've got the, one for each of us. Richly so we, emollient so we balm. The, so we put it down so yeah, we with the, with a distinctive spicy aroma derived from a complex blend that includes crushed coriander seeds, black peppercorns, and patchouli. Suitable for most hippie skin types. Massage into warm, damp skin after showering. We're not, no, not no spoilers, but neither of us are warm or damp. Neither of us are warm or damp. Okay. Um, it so looks I, like butter when it comes out. It, it does looks, look like. It looks like sort of earth like balance. A, it looks like, like you know, what, when some restaurants when they give you like soft butter. Yeah. It looks like that, and it kind of feels like it. I think it smells terrific. It smells terrific. Oh, it does smell terrific. I'm not against patchouli scent. And that is one of the most surprising things about me is that I don't mind the smell of patchouli. Nag Champa, not going for it. Patchouli, yeah. let's do it. Nag Champa, no thank you. Nag, nag, thank you. Nag, thank you. How do you feel about this balm? I like it. It's thick. It's a yeah. rather thick balm. So you have extra. Um, this would be a nice hand balm. I like the smell of it. Mm-hmm. I think... Anything Can else? you describe the smell? Do you, does it smell like black pepper to you, or does it just smell like a peppery patchouli? It smells kind of like a spa. You know what I mean? Mm, no. You don't? I mean, yeah, it does smell like a spa, but can you hone in on that? Uh, maybe it's the patchouli smell. Doesn't it? Doesn't it? Doesn't scream black pepper? If it didn't, if it didn't say black pepper, I wouldn't be thinking black pepper. I feel like somebody smelled patchouli for the first time and were like, "It's peppery." Because yeah. pepper itself, you don't want to smell. You, somebody would sneeze every time they got close to you. Oh, exactly. Well, Isaac, uh, you know what I just realized is that since we're each trying them, they're so intense that uh-huh. we can't just put more on top. Yeah, of we cannot put more on top. <laughs> Sagittarian Matters is produced by Chris Sutton with assistance by Ponyo Georges. Our theme music is composed by Carolyn Pennypacker Riggs of the band Bouquet. Thank you for listening, and I'll see you next time.